Welcome to Rogue Bogues. Little bonus episode here. We've got an interview pro. We've been waiting to get this guy on for, for a little while. He's always always fun to talk with. Pro, what's going on? Bogues, what are you up to, brother? Oh, just preparing for this guy, man. He's uh, he's, a, he's a big name. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, played with him many years. So without further ado, Jock Landale, welcome to Rogue Bogues. Cheers, fellas. Thanks for having me. How nervous are you right now? You know what? If you hadn't have sent me the text the other day saying that um, we were going to keep it pretty PG, then I would have been a little bit nervous. <laughs> but because of the message, I, I'm feeling pretty good right now. Pro doesn't read those anyway. So, nah. yeah, you, you probably should be a little nervous from his end. <laughs> After having dinner with him the other night, as anything's possible, that's all, I'll, that's all I'll say. Yeah, you guys are besties now, right, yeah. bro? Oh, no question. Absolutely. No question. Yeah. Yeah, well, for those that aren't familiar, Jock Landau currently a San Antonio Spur and, and playing um, with the Austin Spurs uh, for a couple of games, hopefully only just a couple. But probably the biggest thing is Jock Landau was officially my coffee bitch um, oh with the national God. team. So we just got to let the listeners know that um, Jock and I had had a great relationship. Jock would always make sure that he got the veterans our coffees, except for that one day, Jock, that you uh, made, a, made a little boo-boo. Yep. You said you wanted a lukewarm coffee and I did the job and then you kicked up a stink about it. So I don't really know where- Lukewarm coffee. No, I never use those words. <laughs> I never use those words. Now, Jock got cheeky. So what he would do was he'd go down to the coffee shop. He'd do all the orders at once, sit down and have his coffee 30 minutes before the bus, then bring all the coffees on with the boys. And, and you know, Bogues noticed that I, I drank it. It was basically like an iced coffee. So uh, we had a little bit of back and forth. Jock got a little a little emotional and so did I. And it was, uh, no, nah, nothing too serious. But uh, <laughs> anyway, Jock, I didn't really- Realize you're not the most famous thing from from Denny from Deniliquin. Yeah, the Ute Muster is. The Ute Muster is. It's in my notes. So I, I had no idea, Jock. What do you so mean you had no idea? Be. I feel like that's the only thing I ever tell tell you about is how good the Denny Ute Muster is. Well, I ignored most of what you said besides when we had our coffee conversations, if I have to be honest. But no, <laughs> I mean, geez, that's I thought you were the the, the bee's knees of Deniliquin, but obviously not for those that aren't familiar. The Ute Muster is the largest event of its kind in the world, standalone event, which began as a celebration of all things Australian, starting with the Aussie icon of the Ute, and then it's it's gone into, I guess, uh, music festivals, circle work, um, bull riding, basically a, a country western type atmosphere jock is that right mate there's plenty plenty more than just that there's a lot of alcohol consumed there's anything flies at that at that uh little festival so it is a wild time and uh i would say that my family would attest to the fact that it's it's a once in a lifetime experience everyone should go and do at some point in their life but on top of that i would say that you know even before me on the list i would put my grandfather Above me is one of the you know the the better known things to come out of Denny. I think uh, he did a lot for that for that little town, and and uh, a lot of people would probably know him before they knew knew about me. Really? Yeah, mate. Break that down for us. So just big name in town, and pretty much he. I mean, the list goes on, but he he pretty much. He, he was a big part of making Denny into what it is today and they've got one of the uh, the wings at the the local Navarino which is you know it's a care home for the elderly you know named after him and, and he was a big part of the, the city council and helping with all of the farmers and, and you know turning it into what it is in the rice industry today and, and all of that so yeah he had, a, he had a big influence on the town itself So more useful stuff than basketball is what you're saying <laughs> Pretty much Pretty much <laughs> You are, I'm sure you'll get a statue one day, but and just to finish off this Ute Muster, now I now understand why you rock the um, the blue wife beater, the blue singlet, because Daniloquin apparently 
set a Guinness world record for the most people wearing blue singlets in one spot in 2010, and that stands at 3,500 people. Jock, were you there part of that? I did not know about that, mate. I did not know about that. But my old man might have very well been there. I wouldn't put that past him. <laughs> and your old lady too, probably. Probably. she. She. Uh, I have seen photos of mum wearing a wife beater before, so I wouldn't put anything past those two. They're nuts. No, good stuff. And And- Take us through, I guess, your childhood real quick, just so we can circle that off. How long did you spend in Denny? Because I know at, at some point you your family had a pad out in Melbourne, and and, yeah. and you obviously went to to Geelong Grammar, which is a boarding school for those not familiar. So, but how long did you spend there until you actually kind of made the move more towards Melbourne and, and Geelong Grammar? We all, always kind of home based out of Melbourne because uh, Dad decided to to leave the farm life behind him for a bit uh, for whatever reason, and and he went and kicked up a career in stockbroking with Merrill Lynch and kind of worked his way up from from the bottom and and that's a story in itself but um yeah like i mean most of our holidays and, and spare time were, were spent back there because our family just had such a strong tie to the country so every opportunity we got we were heading back there as a family you know we get four ho- four sets of holidays throughout the year and and we we're always up there whenever whenever we could you know we didn't really have a permanent place of residence there but the homestead and the family house i suppose what mum and dad have made into their own these days was always kind of open to the to the siblings and yeah i mean we were, we were up there we had our own little bedrooms and stuff uh within that big homestead which is you know now she's 180 years old or something like that so we were always kind of getting up there as much as we could uh had great dad had a great relationship with his his mum and dad and uh you know we we were always up there just trying to make the most of our time with with hunter my grandfather and peg my grandmother so every chance we got man it was it it unfortunately i i can't call it home as such because you know i spent probably a bit more time in Melbourne than I did in Denny but it always felt like home just because that was our happy place and still is to this day and now mum and dad have been living out there full time for you know probably eight years ten years so dad kind of sold out of his business uh in Melbourne and, and and bought the farm out from the rest of the siblings after Hunter passed it was kind of you know split up and dad decided that's where his real passion was and you know used the funds he he sold uh his funding from his company to to take over the farm for good and and you know the rest is kind of history so they're up there full time you know at the start of COVID I was there for probably four or five months you know really just getting back in touch with that part of the world because I hadn't been there in so long and but yeah you know a lot of time was spent kind of back and forth between Melbourne and there early on and then you know obviously when when boarding school kind of kicked up it was it was tough to get back there uh, more so than usual because our family was kind of stuck in Melbourne for whatever reason and and you know there was a bit of stuff going on uh, up on the farm which you know we couldn't really get up there as much so um, yeah it's a long story but you know that that is home in my heart and I miss it a lot. Are you uh trained in living off the land if it was just you by yourself you're milking the cows you're getting out in the fields <laughs> well we don't we're not a dairy farm bogue so you need to get that one we need to scratch that one if my dad yeah, caught you me might saying have your we were own, a dairy farm your own milk your own wagyu beef nah we dad uh you know dad we do eat some of our own meat occasionally but for the most part you know all of our stuff is is on contract so you don't really get a whole lot of leeway in in terms of what you uh can take home yourself because you, you really you are really are work to the bone as a farmer so but yeah you know I, I do enjoy getting back there but unfortunately i i will admit that i don't do a whole lot of work when i'm back there these days besides ruin boats this guy is joe fucking dirt <laughs> I, I mean i thought i was joking around when i called him joe fucking dirt he is truly joe dirt could be loosely fucking based on his life just so you know 
But potentially, I digress. The mullet with the I mullet. I digress. The the mohawk mullet. Yeah, yeah. Junior basketball, Jock. I read that you um you gave up the game mid high school, right, and then took it back up. Take us through that. Did you? I mean, were you always kind of in the mindset of you played a bit of footy too, right? Were you in the mindset of um always being a professional athlete, professional basketballer, kind of just go with the flow? Take us through that whole journey of 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 how you got to you know, obviously trending towards what you are now. Yeah, well, I never really had it in mind that basketball was my thing. You know, I uh, I grew up just wanting to be a regular kid, um, you know, was pretty overweight and all, and, and all that, as you know, and basketball was never really a passion for me. I actually used to hate getting up to go and work out and play basketball and I would enjoy, you know, playing football more, even, you know, doing squad swimming for a little while, tennis, you know, I was kind of diving into to every sport and just being a regular regular kid just trying to you know hang out with his mates and have a good time and basketball was never really at the front of my mind i was trying to quit for years but my parents were always trying to throw me in there and keep me active and for whatever reason it was wasn't even like a plan of theirs that this would kind of happen it was just you know the way things were going so you know I, I did some some uh, some stuff with Simon Giovanoni, who's you know still to this day a good friend of mine and, and my trainer when I go home. But we we kind of did like little workouts off the off the side of things uh, for years, and and I played domestic basketball, and you know I played at Waverley for a year or two. And similar to you, they told me I'd never make it and kicked me off the team, and and that's kind of where I quit. So. I, I ended up quitting after I was cut from their squad. Uh, I don't even know what that was. Maybe year five or year six. My parents were still keen to kind of keep me in it for whatever reason and ended up going to boarding school uh, in year seven where the boarding school, Geelong Grammar, said that I couldn't actually play. They didn't have a high school team. They weren't keen on me going off campus to play with the, the Geelong team. And so we kind of just took the opportunity to take a break from it and um and I was, at that point, that's where I really just started playing a lot of footy and uh, swimming and doing tennis, and even was a, a record holder in shot put. So that was, you know, that's a bit of a claim to fame there in itself. But yeah, you know, basketball just was never at the at the uh, forefront of you know my passion or, or mine, and um, and then kind of brings on you know the whole timber top scenario where we go away for a year and 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 uh, you know we camp camp out in the woods and live in cabins with 12 other blokes and you know we do a couple days of school here and there but for the for the most part it's kind of a it's a bit of a boot camp and um you know we're we're up in the mountains you know hiking our way up to six days and you know it was probably about 100 120 k's over six days or thereabouts i think is one of the big ones and and then we were doing a half marathon uh, up and down a mountain so that's kind of what you build your way up to and it's that's more of more to the point of what the purpose of the curricula, curriculum is is to kind of help you distance yourself from your, your family and not be so coddled and and um you know it was it was an enjoyable year but that in itself is an experience that uh that really brought out the best in me and brought on my passion for for physical activity and just you know kind of being in a team setting in a team environment there's there's we have roles of jobs and you got to cut your own firewood to, to heat up the water in the morning and um you know you've got to you got to clean the whole place from from head to toe and i mean it's it's a full-on experience and uh it it definitely brought out the best in me so you know when third term came around and at that point we're we're only running once or twice a week and we're kind of skiing up on the mountains i had an incident where i fell over on like the last day in the last hour of our last skiing day for for the year and uh, i actually snapped my wrist 
really badly where it was almost coming out of the skin my arm was all mangled and whatnot so you know i went home and i had to spend uh i think it was about eight weeks or nine weeks away from the program up in the mountains just to kind of have surgery on my wrist and uh we had surgery and we were looking there are growth plates in your wrist which are usually the first ones in your body to close and we were looking at these growth plates and the doctors were like mate like you're already six foot and you're 15 years old or whatever i was but like your growth plates are wide open like you haven't even hit puberty yet which at that point i probably hadn't really so they were like you're going to be a monster you might grow to be seven two or something like that and at that point we like before that point we thought i was going to be you know six four or whatever they tell you when you're a kid so to hear that it was like you know i, I love physical activity i love uh all these you know different things about being in a team environment like what can i do with this height and you know footy was one of the first things that came to mind but i'd kind of drifted away from it and wasn't really too much of a fan and basketball had been something at timber top that i was doing up on a little dirt quarter court i'd probably say uh, just shooting hoops out the back of our out, out the back of our cabin and I was like, damn, I'm starting to really love this. So at that point, you know, when I was at home uh, for those, you know, six to nine weeks, we were like, you know, maybe we maybe we give this a crack. So we got out, we reached out to a good friend of mine, Rod Boone, who unfortunately passed away earlier this year. And and he was like, mate, come down and have a crack at the 18 ones. So, you know, at 15 years old, I was thrown into the 18 ones and the rest is kind of history. Yeah, nice long story. Just, just- that Geelong Grammar, that was year nine where you went away or year 10? Year nine. Yeah, and I, I love that story, Pro. So, I don't know if you're familiar, but the, the, the grammar school, they go away for the whole year, man, and they spend it. Um, I actually know the spot. I looked at a property down that way many years ago and, and spoke to Jock about it, funnily enough, and he was like, yeah, that was where I was <laughs> for a year. <laughs> um, but- <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, no phones too, right? Um, no phones. No phone calls in the first term and then you got one in the second term. You could phone home, but no no mobiles. Were you cooking some of your own food? No phones, no computers maybe, or maybe we had computers, but they weren't like linked up to the internet. So, they were only for typing, you know, typing on Word documents and stuff. So, we couldn't communicate back home unless we wrote a letter and posted it. So, it was like- I mean, my mum's my mum loves chatting every five minutes. So she would write six letters, and by the time I get these six letters, <laughs> I've written one and sent it back. So it's like the com- way of communicating was actually really hard because you had to kind of pair up and 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 wait for these like four page written letters, like handwritten letters. It was insane. So they really like cut you off from the rest of the world. To the point where we had kids who couldn't cope with it and they were trying to run away and catch buses from, you know, the local town Mansfield. So, they would run into town, which is like 60 or 70 kilometers or something like that just to catch a bus to go back to Melbourne because they couldn't cope with it. But it is hands down one of the most life-changing and probably defining years of, of my life, I would say, which is probably a little bit extreme. But like, honestly, I don't think I would be here without learning as much as I did about myself that year as, you know, any other year. So, it is full on. I mean, you know, just like cutting down, you know, getting getting these the, – the, the campus delivers logs of wood and you have 12 guys in a unit, you know, a cabin unit, whatever you want to call it, and one of those guys has to saw wood all week just so the next guy on the job list can put that wood in a boiler at 3 a.m. so that the rest of the unit can have hot showers. And it's <laughs> like it is everything is just pulled right back down to like basic level stuff. And that's how we that's how we lived for a year. And, you know, if one guy didn't pull his weight, the whole thing crumbled. So by the end of the year, you're kind of all doing your job really well. But at the beginning, it's brutal, man. You know, the experiences we had out there were crazy. You know, you're hiking however many kilometers it is in a day. Like the first term, you're, you're running three times a week and you're 
Oh no, sorry. You're running two times a week, and you're and you're hiking on the weekends. And then by the the second term, you're running three times a week, and you're not hiking because it starts to get a little bit cold. You're kind of doing community service at that point, which is pretty fun because you get shipped out to other people's properties to help on their farms. And sometimes, I mean, the school probably won't love me saying this on a podcast, but like we would sneak into the house whilst the people were gone, jump on the phone to call back home. So that would happen. Like you hear stories <laughs> of that once or twice. And then in the third term. Uh, you're running three times a week and you're skiing on your weekends or doing kind of hobbies is what they call them. So I learned to fly fish up there. That was the hobby that I selected and we would learn to fly fish in the third term. And then in the fourth term, you're back to running twice a week. But those those runs, you have a short run and a long run. The short runs are probably eight kilometers and the long runs work their way up to about 28 kilometers. So, you know, the shortest one you do that term is probably 16 to 18 kilometers and the rest are all like mammoths of runs and like you just got to back it up another two days later and do a short eight kilometer run so it's no joke man but uh you know people really do come out better from it and you know even my girlfriend she she would attest to that as much as she probably didn't didn't love the year she you know it's, it is life-changing and, and people really do come out for the better yeah it builds a, a lot of resilience i think that's the most important thing at that age what about the nudie runs mate you didn't mention those <laughs> If you want to dive into that, we can. But yeah, there were a few nudie. No, I need to dive into it. But yeah, I remember you mentioned that you, you guys used to run like ten kilometers to Mary Jig. Was that town? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Mary the Jig one pub town run. Pub. I never, I never did the Mary Jig pub run, but it, I know of plenty of people who did, and and the ones that got caught were were a bit worse for wear. So uh, there were plenty I, of nudie runs. I said some bullshit, Bob. To be honest with you, Man, I said some oh. bullshit with them. Do you want yeah, me to call my friends onto the Zoom meeting right now? They're probably all half cut at a pub, but they'd love to tell yeah. some stories. <laughs> yeah. And I stopped at two fucking slices of pizza last night too. You want, a, you want another fucking you want another fucking story? Come on. Give me a fucking break, buddy, would yeah, you? Pro, pro's a little jealous he can't do the nudie runs, I think. That's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's probably more the problem. But uh, take us through the recruiting process at St. Mary's. How many schools did you have recruiting you? Were they kind of the the be on end or was that the only one? Take us through that whole process. Yeah, St. Mary's was only the only real one. I had uh, your mate, Kerry Rupp. You worked with him? Yeah, he was an assistant to Rick Majerus. And then when Majerus got fired, he was my head coach for like half a season. And then he, he left after that. But yeah, good fella. Yeah, so he, uh, I mean, his whole sales pitch was to, to me was I, I coached Andrew Bogut. So <laughs> it didn't sell you? Fuck. No, he hey, didn't no, know why you got fired selling me. But <laughs> so he was kind of the first guy to get out in contact, like really get in contact. Uh, after I did, was that Louisiana Tech? No, he was at what Montana was at that point. Oh, but he ended up leaving yep. that year that he was recruiting me to somewhere else. I forget where, but Oregon, I think Oregon State. Yeah. So your basketball academy that I. I paid good money for and I think I deserve a bit of a, you know, knock kickback at some point was where he kind of laid eyes on me for the first time. So, uh, from that, he kind of got out and he got in contact a little bit and expressed interest from Montana. Now, the, the interest never really, it never seemed like very serious, you know, that he had some good chats with us and he came out and he watched me do a workout and all of that jazz, but it was never really like a, a full on, you know, we want you here and this, that, you know, we want to bring you out on an official visit and blah, blah, blah. There was none of that. I think there was chat of a non-official visit where I had to pay my way to go out to college or whatever it is. Fuck that. We were just like, <laughs> nah, no chance. So then, you know, fast forward a couple of weeks later and um, at that point I'd kind of, I you know, I'd 
participated in an Australia camp and someone must have seen me there and kind of put in the good word to St. Mary's. But Dane Pinot, who I became good friends with and Emmett Nah, they went to St. Mary's for a year and those boys, a year after that Australia experience came to Australia. Oh, no, it was only a couple of months later, sorry. Um, they came to Australia on a, you know, to play Dandenong Rangers or something like that out at, uh, out at Dandenong. So I actually was walking across the court to say good day to Dane and the coaches apparently had a conversation. They're like, who the who the fuck is that tall, tall prick over there? And that's the first time St. Mary's ever laid eyes on me and pretty much like did a bit of research at that point. I, ha- I had like a few, you know, mixtapes out or whatever you want to call them from, uh, from like my days with the Geelong Supercats, but I hadn't really had a whole lot of exposure to the college yeah. scene other than- Whoever made you the fucking highlight tapes, you need your money back because you got recruited by those fucking bums. Hey man, I love St. Mary's. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So them seeing me walk across the court for the first time is kind of where- like it all kicked up. So they ended up flying back to America and two weeks later sent Adam Caporn back out uh, who like messaged me. They were recruiting another bloke at that time, I think. And they messaged me and they were like, hey, we're in town. We might pop down to um, Geelong to, you know, just put eyes on you and see what you like. And I was like, mate, we're out of season in representative basketball. So I have nothing for you except for like maybe an individual workout. And they asked if we had a high school team and I said, no, but at that point in time, me and my mates had kind of taken to doing a bit of just like, you know, we would just play like an open gym kind of thing. But my friends are like five foot three at this point. Like they are fucking tiny and they have no basketball experience. So St. Mary's flew a coach out to watch me play against a bunch of football players who I was just playing open gym with as a bit of a, like, you know, we were just mates having a bit of fun. So that's what they recruited me off to. And as as the story goes, Capes called back to uh, Coach Bennett and was like, hey, like, I've just seen him playing. He looks like, you know, fucking LeBron James, but he's also playing against a bunch of five foot kids and he's 6'11". And that's kind of all I've got to go off. So they were like, all right. (laughs) We'll fly him out to St. Mary's and take a look at him, you know, in our preseason when he's like scrimmaging with the boys. So a couple, like not a week later, I'm on a flight to St. Mary's. So this is all like a three week process. I'm at St. Mary's. I'm doing a workout. I'm fat as anything. I'm almost as fat as pro and I'm doing this workout in front of St. Mary's. (laughs) And these guys- That's rough. Hey man, you give it to yourself just as good. I'm just jumping on the bandwagon here. (laughs) Good point. Good uh, point. I was like exhausted in this workout. I was hardly able to get past half court and, uh, every offensive possession and they offered me a scholarship on the spot and, and that's kind of how it went. So the moral of the story is if you want to be recruited by some colleges out there, kids, just get a get an open scrimmage or videotape yourself playing against some shorter friends of yours and you might get you might, you might get someone looking at you. But uh, there you go. Your, your college career was, was very impressive. It kind of for the most part, I don't know if you'd agree, but it, it went kind of somewhat unnoticed for the most part. Obviously, your senior year, you blew up. But, I mean, 13, 13.2 points, 6.7 rebounds over your career. Senior year, 21 and 10 at night. I think you, you gained some steam in the tournament, had a really good tournament. But, um, yeah, do you feel like you probably – probably peaked so late in your college not peaked but media wise peaked like people didn't really know too much about you and then all of a sudden it's like hey who's this kid like where where has he come from but you were kind of there the whole time like playing pretty well you know for sure you know my freshman year i really made some like good strides as a freshman and and the college gained some they were they were excited about the fact that i was with them and they saw a good future in me and i don't think we ever thought it was going to be what it was but like they 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 thought that you know at the end of the my freshman year they were like hey like we 
we really want to give you the the keys of the uh, keys of the castle in your second year, and you kind of take it forward from there for the next three. And I took that as life's life's good. I'm you know my career's sorted. I'll be fine. And I took my foot off the gas entirely that off season and like blew out. I was and I came back out of shape, which kind of set me up for what my sophomore year was. Was you know I was in the starting lineup in those practices leading up to season, and then they were like, we can't, we can't. This can't, kid can't be out on the floor for more than three minutes at a time because he's so out of shape. So they gave the spot back to Dane and that's why my minutes were only, you know, 15 a game in my sophomore year. And that's where I, at the end of that year, I had a, a conversation with two of my good mates from college and they were like, man, you just need to get yourself in shape and, and you'll be fine. Because throughout that sophomore year, I kind of had flashes of excellence, but it was never really like consistent just because I couldn't be out on the floor for more than two or three minutes at a time. So. Once I kind of got past that and flipped the switch on, hey, you know, my body and my diet is really important for, you know, to, to make sure that this, you know, will stick and that I actually, I realized that I actually had a chance. So, once I kind of made that transition mentally um, and got myself in shape for my junior year, I'd say that's where it really kind of started taking off and, um, you know, led that led that team or helped that team get to the NCAA tournament. And, you know, that's, I would say after my junior year, I actually considered uh, taking a stab at, at the draft. And I think that draft class was pretty weak. I can't remember off the top of my head, but, you know, I had some conversations with some agents and, and even my coaching staff and they said, it's not a bad option. But at that time I was pretty bang- I was a bit banged up with a, with a bad knee and ended up coming back for my fourth year, which was a great decision and, and you know, yeah, that's how it went. Yeah, I guess her story is is great in the sense of for parents that listen to the podcast and, and kids even, you know, your freshman year, you know, 2.1 points a game, not even a full rebound, 0.9, barely played any minutes. The perseverance and your improvement throughout your career is something that we don't see these days with a lot of kids. It's like Pro and I talk about it all the time. It's like, oh, I've had a bad year or coach is screwing me or it's not fair. I'm just going to transfer or I'm going to ask for a trade or I'm going to sign somewhere else when, you know, you – like you just mentioned, after your sophomore year, you identified what the problem was, right? It was you. Yeah. And I even spoke to some people that, you know, some coaches that were on that team and some of your teammates and, and they, they all had, they all said the same thing. Like, Jock will be, he is or he will be the best player on the team, but he's got to get in shape and so much so, they were, they were shit scared of you going home for the off season. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing that they stuck out, especially after that sophomore year. They were like, I'm not sure if you went home that off season, but they were, they, I remember they were just saying we were so against him going home even for two weeks because we were so scared about all the hard work that he put in to get to shape that we're like, shit, he's going to come back as a beach ball again. Yeah, well, I mean, that sophomore year, I went home for uh, the end of my freshman year. I went home for eight weeks or something like that and that was disastrous. Um, but- after that, so at the end of my sophomore and then the end of my junior, you know, I had conversations with Marty and, and, and with uh, RB and it was like, mate, just like make sure you don't do anything crazy when you go home but, and all that kind of stuff. And so, I was only going home for like a week, week and a half, I think both those years because I was I was also like not trusting of myself at that point. Like I just started getting off the, the train of, you know, being fat and out of shape and all that stuff. So, like, I wanted to just make sure I was around an environment I knew I was going to be kind of safe in and, and you know, wouldn't let myself loose. And I had people there holding me accountable. So, yeah, I, I didn't go – I hardly went home th- uh, for those those last two or three years because I was just scared that the same thing would happen and I would just – when I get around my mates, man, sometimes I just have no self-control. So, I blame them for that. But <laughs> – Yeah. 
but it's at least you identified it. That's my point with all this. It's like if you can identify your weaknesses and pro, I'm sure you would agree you can identify your weaknesses. It's much better than a coach having a prod you or someone else. And I would say that like it goes a step further, like even like after after my senior year where I was an All-American and, and having a great year and I went to summer league and stank that up, I could have easily just rolled over and just been like, oh, bugger it. Like I'll just, I'll give up on my dream to play in the NBA and, and you know, I'll just do whatever I, I could have done to maybe go and just have an easy career sitting at the end of a bench in the NBL or something like that. And like not really just being that ambitious, but I think because of my, you know, ambitious nature, I decided to go to a hard place to play and play at Partizan and, and you know, and again, like it was, I felt like I was back to freshman year where I had to, you know, come off the bench for those first 10 to 15 games a season playing five, 10 minutes a game and I had to work myself up in that system and then it was to Zalgiris and then, it, you know, so it's, it's constantly just been a career of having to, you know, not have stuff spoon fed to you. And I've really had to go out there and, and try and make the best of every situation to to get to where I wanted to be. Yeah, I think that's the best way to do it in some cases though, you know, because like you learn how to sort of get into a situation, earn your spot, you know, really earn your playing time. And going through those struggles, I think are really important. Like your weight struggles, like, you know, when you could overcome that and then you could overcome going into these situations, not playing a lot at first, and then have to earn it. I think it really sets you up for the rest of your career versus going on another level where like maybe you weren't ready, but they threw you in there and you did okay. And you had that false sense of, yeah, I don't really need to work. I'm good. And I'd rather come the other way because it really gets you ready for adversity. You know, and I think that sort of builds up your career pretty well. How'd you feel about it though? Going through that sort of deal in, in Partizan, how, how did you feel having to earn those minutes and things? Well, I think that we, we spoke about it a little bit the other night. Like like everybody, everyone wants to be Andrew Bogut who, who gets to be number one draft pick and have some sense of security. I don't know if that's really what it would be like being a number one draft pick, Bogue. So, you know, don't take my word for it. But like you, everyone wants to have that sense of security where you wake up and you're like, no, nah, you know what? Like I'm good. Like, but I never having that was really hard um, because even in those early days at Partizan, I was like, I could get fired tomorrow because I'm not really becoming what they want me to. Or I was always questioning whether or not I was really becoming that and um, or like living up to their expectations. So, not having any sense of security throughout my career. Um, I would say at Melbourne, there was a little bit of security, but even still, I had kind of, my brain's kind of tricked itself into always thinking that there's going to be someone coming for my minutes or something like that, which there always will be in fairness. Like, I don't think that anyone's career is really ever safe where they can just take their foot off the gas. But even in Melbourne, I was like, oh, Joe might come for my minutes. Like, he was kicking my ass early on in that in that whole thing. So, you know, those that year at Partizan was, you know, that was probably one of the toughest years of my life to date. You know, I really, really struggled through that year a lot mentally. And Did you have a passport or you were import? I was an import, yeah. Yeah, and even, that's even worse. Yes, to, to your point, imports, for those not familiar, you're an import in Europe. You're generally expected to, to be the top scorer. You're generally expected to be. They don't give a shit about your development. They're not like, oh, yeah, well, we know, we know Jock's young first year out of college like no you're a fucking import you you better give us bang for buck and especially at partisan where like the emphasis is on winning and nothing but winning which is again shaped you know my mentality today is you got to win at all costs like there's none of that three-year plan that the nba guys have with young prospects 
it's all about winning then and there and they won't accept anything less. So I really enjoy that way of basketball because you know you're getting everyone's best every night. But it is it is cutthroat and it's extremely hard to survive out there. You know, you see guys time and time again. I think there was a statistic that came out that most pro players in Europe from, you know, overseas, their careers last three or two and a half or three years or something like that. And 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 then they retire because they just can't cope with the the stress of it all and and you know having having so many so much expectations from fans from yourself your family all that kind of stuff so yeah it, it is really hard but it's you know it it it's helped me become and get to where I am now yeah you, you chose a hell of a spot to go to by the way in your in your rookie pro year um, partisan really really tough place to play crazy fans great atmosphere but talk us through when you left partisan and the shit that you had to deal with because this is this is a this is these are the stories that I've heard from a lot of people playing in Europe. Um, Daniel Kickett, for one, he got he got stuck trying to get out of Ukraine, I believe, when the bombings happened and just got on a flight in time before basically the airport got bombed. That's one example. But even there's fans and whatnot. But you you had your own example once you um once you basically were announced not coming back, right? Yeah. So I was dealing with an injury at the time, and my that the club was pretty much telling me that I was fine but I couldn't walk on my left ankle. Like I couldn't walk. <laughs> and they were like, no, 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 you're fine. Yeah, sure. Like the x-rays are clear. And I was like, yeah, I know the x-rays are clear, mate, but that's not, that's not my bone that I'm worried about. It's the, it's the monstrously large pocket of swelling that's sticking out at the side of my foot that's stressing me out. And they were like, you're fine, just play. Like, just get out there and play because we need you. And at that point I was really like helping the team win and whatnot, so. They were desperate to get me out there. So I, I I had to put my foot down. And sometimes in those instances, you do. You know, the, those clubs out there, as much as I love my experience and I know the fans will listen to this and, you know, they'll get angry at me for, for saying what I'm going to say. But I love my time there. But there was no real – it didn't feel like anyone really cared about my ankle. So, you know, at the time I was I was chatting to my agent and I was my, – my previous agency and I was like, you guys got to get me out of here, man. Like, you know, my ankle's fucked and they're trying to make me play through an extreme amount of pain. I can't even walk, let alone run. So as it goes, you know, we kind of had, you know, a contract with Zalgiris agreed on and and we were excited about that, you know, getting to step up into EuroLeague, which is tough to do. There's not many players that really get up into EuroLeague on a year-to-year basis. So that was, situation was kind of looking good at the time. And um, at that point, I'm trying to remember what happened. At that point, I started getting messages about a leak of a rumor or something like that and how the fans were just blowing my phone up about how much they hated me because I was going to leave them. And, you know, they're trying to get back to EuroLeague and, you know, they saw me as being a big, big part of that at the time. And so I kind of get it. But, you know, some of the messages I was getting were pretty horrendous. So at that point in time, we kind of got it to a verbal agreement with um, with my agency and, and, uh, and the club that, you know, I could fly direct back to... to I think of Milwaukee. I'd, oh, yeah, Milwaukee I'd just signed with the Summer League. So, they were like, you can go to Milwaukee, you can get your ankle right and then come back whenever it feels right because the the facilities and stuff weren't getting the job done there if it feels right. And anyway, so, you know, I'm, I'm about to jump on this flight out of the country. I'd had my bags packed for weeks and, you know, my agency at the time calls me and they're like, hey, you know, we want to go, we want to just send you to Zalgiris, even though we have no contract signed, just to get the the medical done and, and all sorted. And I was like, all right, like you guys are the pros, I, I trust you, let's do it. So I jump on this flight 
to go to to Lithuania and I touched down in Warsaw, Poland and my phone is blowing up like I've never seen it before. Like there must have been a thousand messages or something like that. I have no idea how many there were, but it was going bananas. So I'm like, what the hell's happened? Anyway, I guess the PR team at Zalgiris had somehow caught wind that I was coming to town and they thought that I'd signed. So uh, they put, put out a an Instagram post saying that I'd signed there. And at that point, Partizan had only made a verbal agreement and they weren't they weren't sure that I was actually going to sign with Zalgiris at that time. It was kind of all still in discussion that I might go back to Partizan, but the verbal agreement was for me to go to the US to rehab my ankle. So, you know, the story goes on. Um, there's a big dispute in, you know, how I've fucked them essentially, the, the club and, and that, you know, all this all these clauses were put in my contract my buyout went through the roof so that i could get away from partisan because i had essentially left you know towards the end of the season but my contract hadn't actually permitted me to leave at that point in time and that's kind of where all my contract uh issues began is you know because i i I went to Zalgiris when I was meant to be going back to the US uh, and that was all meant to be some secret operation and obviously as soon as I take off it it blows up and at that point I was just fucking hated by everyone uh, so you know then you know that's that's kind of how it went and then you got, you got to Lithuania and couldn't play for a while right uh, no well I got to Lithuania and I and I, I did my medical and went back to the US and played summer league and it, yeah there was no there was no issue with actually getting on court in Lithuania okay yeah and then you so then you start on on, on that following season yeah with Salgiris one thing in all of this um, with your with the way your game is I noticed that um, talk us through you weren't a three-point shooter at all in college um, so much so that I looked up your career numbers. You <laughs> attempted zero zero point two. Was that? Did you f- feel like you would shoot it in college, and it just wasn't part of the system? Because now you're you know you're an elite three point shooter, feet set. Happy to get them up as well, and, mm-hmm. and you have a beautiful you know beautiful shot and whatever. But yeah, in college, you know, never looked like you would be that. So was that something that you worked on in the transition as a pro going over to Europe, or was it something you felt like you had, but just in St Mary's system, you were twenty one and ten, your senior night without needing a three. Yeah, uh, that's probably a better question for Marty, actually. Marty was the one who I was kind of working with at the time. I I would say that I always had the confidence that I could shoot it a little bit and it might have been irrational at that point in time. But, you know, I did shoot some some face-up jumpers at a pretty good clip. Um, I never We never stretched it out as far as a three-point line, but a lot of St. Mary's stuff was repetition. So, no matter who you were, uh, whether or not you could shoot like – even Dane Pinot was out there practicing three-pointers every day at St. Mary's and his three-point shooting percentage must be in the in the teens, I would say. But Ouch. Dane, <laughs> take that. Dane, take that. I know you'll love that as well. But like we practiced three-pointers every single day regardless of who you were. So I would say that I always kind of, irrational or not, had, a, had an inkling that I could shoot a little bit. I felt like I had to refine my shot a lot and there was a noticeable difference between my junior and senior year. And my senior year, I let a couple fly. Maybe it might have been eight or ten. Three for ten. Three for ten. There you go. At that point in time, our shooting, uh, our our offensive structure was so based around the Warriors, at uh, you know, around your guys actually, um, and, and playing that split game out of the post that we, we really didn't need me shooting any threes. And I was cool with it. Um, I knew that I was going to have the, you know, 
going to be able to score out of the post and facilitate. And at that point in time, you know, my right hand jump hook was everything that I'd worked on. And, and for some reason, people kept letting me get to it that I was like, screw it, I'll just keep doing that. I also had the likes of Emmett Nair and Joe Rahan, who are great facilitators at our college that, you know, would always find me on rolls. And that's kind of the way the structure was. You know, I respected Marty and, and Coach B enough to, to be able to put my own um, selfish needs, you know, I put them at bay and just did what they asked. And I mean, it worked, man. We were we were pretty unbeatable back then. Yeah, but then you get to you get to Europe and even even summer league straight after your um, college year, and you started hoisting them up. So was that just a mindset shift for you? Were you, or did you put a lot of work in in that in that season between you know your senior year finishing, and then was it a matter of look, I, I need a I've got a kind of mindset now that I, I need to stretch my game out and, and make this an emphasis of something I need to get better at and more confident at that I can shoot at bulk or did it just naturally kind of um, progress? Man, it was it was a multitude of things to be honest with you. It was kind of an understanding that, I mean, honestly, when I came out of my senior year, there wasn't, there still wasn't like a, like a big emphasis on stretch five. So I, my mindset was, all right, I'm gonna have to transition to the four because I'm not gonna be able to, you know, bang with the, the fives that are in the NBA or in Europe and uh, I'm gonna have to, kind of work my game out so that I can space the floor as a four man and, and try and work my way into a system like that. So um, that was kind of a conversation I had with a couple of people, uh, my old agents, Coach Bennett, all of those guys were kind of harping on about that. And that's kind of where it started. And then when I got to when I got to Serbia, I was working with uh, Arca or Ale- Alexander Matovic and we were doing a lot of a lot of work on on threes. Like he would keep me behind after a three hour practice in, in Serbia and we would do another, you know, hour of rep- repetition form shooting all of that stuff just getting up as many threes as possible so there was a game which i remember um in serbia against red star where I, like you know my coach at the time andre trinkeri come up to me and he was like hey they've got this guy michael ojo rest in peace who is going to sit in a deep drop and we need you to shoot a three and i was like all right so that's how we opened up the game first possession pick and pop nervous as hell because this is a derby against red star which as those european listeners or whoever might know it's brutal it's it is fucking crazy it's the best sporting atmosphere in the world but or in my opinion and you know i open that thing up and bang first one goes down we run the same play whack second one goes down run the same play whack third one goes down so all of a sudden i've hit three out of three of like my first three pointers of the year and that's I just had like this monster hit of confidence, which kind of set me up for the rest. So then I really started spacing the floor and becoming a pick and pop five and it's done me justice. Extra work in uh, Serbia. There's no no load management over there in Europe, Jock. (laughs) (laughs) There's no no GPS and no recovery and all that shit. It's as long as it takes, as long as it takes us. Exactly right. So you you then go on to Zalgiris. Um, You have, you average 11 and four in EuroLeague, play pretty well there. I won't get too much into that. You had, you had a great year. I believe you were, you were looking to return to the EuroLeague, correct? At that point, you were still, you did, I think you did Summer League, the coronavirus year or leading into that. And then you were going to go back to, to Europe, but it, it kind of fell apart with COVID, right? And that's, is that, that's how it we, I, I came out of my Euro Cup going, you know, the year of the World Cup was the last Summer League, league I did with Milwaukee. And then we had the World yep. Cup and I had some, you know, I had a few things kind of pop up. But then at, at that point, my my contract was so jacked up that I that I had to go to, to Zalgiris, which was a great experience, learn a lot there. But yeah, at that point, that's when the NBA interest really started becoming real, you know, through talks with 
you know, whoever it was at the time and my agent, that's when the NBA interest really started peaking. And, and then then goes that that year at Zalgiris in EuroLeague. And that's when COVID hit. And, you know, we were kind of back and forth on whether the season was going to continue or not. So all these clauses in my contract I had for buyouts and stuff, whether it be to another EuroLeague team or to the NBA, they were so crazy because, you know, this, you didn't know when the season was going to start. So I had all these dates that weren't really applicable because they went by four months before season started. So there were plenty of chats. I mean, you know, there was a few Russian teams, one or two Spanish teams in EuroLeague who were kind of interested at the time. I think Maccabi was also chatting to us. There was a fair bit of interest. Um, there was also some NBA interest, but, you know, we just couldn't move any on anything because my contract was... Uh, it was, you know, you could interpret it in two different ways or three different ways or something like that. So we were still just trying to figure out if we could navigate that. And fortunately, uh, Paulius at Zalgiris, the, the GM, he was phenomenal in how he handled that situation with my, my current agency. And, and we kind of amended a few of those those uh, those dates and, and numbers and whatnot. And, uh, you know, hats off to Zalgiris for being so, so top-notch about it. But yeah, they they were they were a big helping hand in, in all of that. And yeah, at the time there was a few few things on, on the cards. And then obviously you end up signing with Melbourne. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Here we so go. When, here we go. Yeah, he's going to try and get something out of me about Melbourne here. No, I'm going to try. No, no, you can be honest about it. So I'm going to let people know the Sydney Kings. I had the discussion with you. Yes. So I, I basically knew that I was, I was done or retired at the time. So I was, I was knocking on your door. I know Will Weaver was at the time. This is when Will Weaver was still the coach going into the off season. Mm-hmm. How close were you considering the Sydney Kings? Because I know, I know, once Will Weaver left, you crossed the Sydney Kings out. Um, and then Melbourne eventuated. As much as I abused the shit out of you for signing there, yeah. eventuated, which is fine. <laughs> But how close would you have signed with the Sydney Kings if Will Weaver stayed on? For sure. Uh, that was that would have I wouldn't say that it was a done deal just because of your guys' financial situation, I would say. Or not situation, but just what the money that was on the table. There was a big interest for me in making the NBA at that time, and that was a big selling point. So the Sid- Sydney Kings were definitely on on the radar at that point. It was only between you guys and uh, Melbourne. But in the end, the thing that really got me over the line was, you know, being back, I knew it was only going to be a one, or at the time I was like, this is only going to be a one year thing. So I might as well situate myself in Melbourne, knowing that if it's only for a year, I want to reconnect with my family and friends and just try and make the most of of that uh, side of things. So if it wasn't for that and that realization and will leaving i would say that uh i would say that sydney probably would have happened yeah i didn't i didn't even once will left i kind of didn't even bother um following up because i kind of knew you know we were, we didn't even have a coach at that point i'm like i'm not gonna you know recruit jock not even knowing who our coach can be and then you know like you know i pressure doc and he signs with this and then we get some coach it doesn't work out then it's, you know i, don't, I didn't want to do that to you from from your career point of view so i just kind of I, I, if you remember i didn't once we left i was like oh, there goes that fuck <laughs> so I, was, I was just texting you yeah, yeah, shit like anyone but them there. go to southeast melbourne go to southeast melbourne <laughs> anyone but them and then he's like bo he's gonna hate me man i something with melbourne I'm like fuck because at but that no, point, you were like, not. if you fucking sign with Melbourne, I'm never talking to you again. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, how am I going to tell this bloke? Like, oh, man, I was uh, actually, that was actually a nervous text I sent. I was like, fuck, he's going to rip my head off. No, nah, it, was, it was, it was, I just, you know, we have a rivalry with Melbourne and I, historically with what happened with myself almost signing there. So, no, nah, but it, it worked out for your career. I mean, you had a, 
MVP caliber year. You were the finals MVP, um, 16, 16 points, eight a night. Probably could have had more, but you guys ran a real ball movement orientated offense. I feel like if you were on a, on a team that um, probably wasn't as good as Melbourne, your numbers would have been much more inflated, which can, you know, sometimes when you've got, you know, a lot of these NBL commentators just judging on numbers, it can be frustrating, which you were frustrated with at times. You were like, what the fuck are these guys on about? And I had to kind of say, hey, man, you just got to let those people chirp and chirp. That's what they get paid to do. You know, but, the, boiling, um, the boiling point of all that was was the uh, was the NBL MVP candidates. Now, I'll say that I, I was pretty harsh in the media when I when I kind of came out to whoever it was and said what I said about it being a scoring title more so than an MVP title. But I feel as though the people who judge that have to look take a hard look at the game because there are a lot of other people around now. Sobes, Tyler Harvey, and Bryce Cotton were obviously having MVP caliber years as, as well, but their impact was tremendous, like body of it was on the scoring end. And I felt as though that's where I was a bit hard done by is going into that year. My whole mentality was let's just, let's win a championship because, you know, I'd won a few in, in Europe and I was so excited to come home and do it on ho- home soil that we just pounded that mentality into everyone. Scotty Hobson could have easily taken, tried to take over that that team and, and done his thing like he had the year before. But, you know, guys like myself, Barlow, Chris, uh, Mitch McCarron were all so huge on let's win a championship and give up our own success for the betterment of the group that it worked out in our, our favor really, really nicely. Yeah, but real real basketball people know that's a thing. Like a lot of these a lot of these NBL commentators that just pick up a stat sheet, not all of them, but there's there's a few, especially a few of them that yell and scream on every time they're on TV. Give us one name. Give us one name. <laughs> Oh, Kerry Williams, you know, I mean, he literally picks up a stat sheet and says, Jock had, you know, 11 and 5. I need more. He's an M- he's an MV- MVP candidate. I need more. And, and you guys won by 30. And you're like, dude, like he played 15 minutes or vice versa. Like a guy has 30 and 20 on a team that's not going to make the finals. That's the best player in the league. It's like, you got to know basketball. Like arguably, like I, that's why I said, if you were on a worse team that was maybe middle of the pack, you would have been 20 and 10 minimum a night, right? Yeah. You got to give that up. Like you said, Scotty Hobson, he came off the bench, I believe, right? He was your sixth man, wasn't he? Halfway through the season, yeah. For stretches, yeah. So imagine a coach going to a guy. He was an MVP candidate the season before with New Zealand. He'd go on to that guy and saying, hey, man, we're going to bring you off the bench. And I'm sure he was probably pissed for a day or two, but then you guys got on with it, won a championship. So it's that conversation. Standing back and, and looking at Scotty's situation, I would say that he was struggling mentally more when we, he was in the starting group than when we were like, yo, come in as the second group leader and take over the game from there. Because after he got got put in that second group, this man started scoring like 20 a night, you know, not 20 a night, but he was having some massive outbursts of scoring just because we knew that, you know, me and Chris are off the floor, it's your time to take over. And and Joe did the same thing, like having Joe Joe as the, the second, you know, the second five man out there and playing some some four as well. We knew that he could get a bucket like whenever he wanted to. So having them kind of come on together and taking over games with the likes of Shilly, who I rate so highly as a basketball player personally, like those three was just like holy shit! Like how yeah, your bench was your bench was really good. Crazy. Yeah, your bench was really really good. And then people forget Jack White in the starting lineup as well. Yeah. Awesome. And then you got yeah. Barlow, who's a smart basketball mind, and and he would kind of complement those guys really well by slowing things down and, and just making, you know, smart basketball plays. So our bench was I mean, if you can credit honestly, in my opinion, if you could credit that championship to someone, it wouldn't be me, it wouldn't be Chris, it would be the bench group, man. They they really got us through some games there. 
I think they did, but I think to your point as well, without you in that starting lineup, um, I don't know if they win a championship. You know, I think you they replace you with 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 just a role playing big, um, even arguably Joe in the starting lineup. I think they're they're in for a battle. So to your point about winning games should definitely impact the MVP, but it's just so hard because it's 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 judged on it's judged on regular season. Then all of a, all of a sudden you guys are in the finals and you win the finals, you got rewarded with the finals MVP. So I guess it's glass half full, half full stuff. But um, moving on from that, let you, me you ask think- one thing real quick. Do you agree that I would say everywhere else other than Europe, individual stats are appraised so much more than they should? Because when I first got to Europe and I sat down with our captain at the time, Novica Velikovic, and I was talking to him, you know, we became really close and would go out for meals and whatever. And he would always, I would always say to him like, man, like I have these ambitions to get to the NBA and blah, blah, blah. And he would be like, bro, like fuck all the stats fuck all of the notoriety, all that shit. Just concentrate on winning. Winning takes care of absolutely everything. And I think that that is a message that I live and die by now, but it's forgotten about in so many leagues around the world, except for those European leagues. Like, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I'm not sure if I'm pro, but you probably agree as well, but I think definitely because and that, that goes with commentary analysis where some leagues, you, they just strictly look at numbers. And that's the, the tough part about the NBA is you get, you know, if you're averaging 12 and nine, there's a big difference if you're then averaging 12 and 10 because your agent can write up a marketing spiel about you averaging a double-double and that's one rebound, right? And right. Then, then you wonder why players on the, on the same team are fighting over a loose rebound and almost knocking each other out and it goes out of bounds. Just or, crazy. You know, all that kind of shit. Um, guys going for, you know, help side defense, just stupid block shot attempts to get their block shots per game up, but they miss the next five in a row and a guy gets an O-board dunk or whatever it is, right? So, you're totally right, but that's that's the unfortunate reality of the NBA pro. I mean, you, you would agree with that to an extent, right? A thousand percent. Like, I, I'm always been a huge fan of European basketball, but- when I was working um, in Chicago with Tim Grover, we had a. Um, I think I talked to you about this Wandale the other day, uh, the other night when we went out about um, Henry Domasant, who was one of the best players in Europe. Well, he signed in Olympia um, Olympiakos in 0607 when the when the final four was in Greece. He got almost two million dollars, and he goes, Mike, they don't care. You know, they they signed like five guys for almost over all all, all over a million dollars, and he was like, Mike, they don't care if I score twenty. Or I score six as long as we win. And there are nights that I'm going to score like 15. And that's like scoring 30 over there, as you know. And then there's nights that I'm going to score six. And they might applaud me more than my six than my 14 or 13 I would have. And it, and I agree. I don't think it's all about winning over there. You know, as long as you show up and, and you do it with grace and you fucking win games, that's all they care about, especially those big ones, especially getting to the, uh, the, the top 16, the final four. Like, that's all they give a fuck about. And it's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. To, to me, that's the that's that's why European European basketball and playing out there was so much fun is because you knew every single night you were just going to do whatever it took to win. And that is like, I mean, that's that's what I that's what I feel like I'm in it for. Like, and just just playing to win is is way more enjoyable because whether or not you have a good or bad night, as long as your team wins, everything stings a little bit less. You know what I mean? So you're not overthinking things. Like on a, in a loss, did I shoot too much? Did I not shoot enough? Was it because I missed those threes? When you win, you can have those same shots and decisions and mistakes, and you don't even second guess it. You're like, we won. Uh, whatever. Who gives a shit, right? You know. So mm-hmm. take me through real quick, just to round off the NBL. Take me through. How did you deal with 
you know, you were the marquee, you were the guy. How did you deal with that coming to a Melbourne United team who was already arguably somewhat a championship favorite the season before or one of the championship favorites, at least top four, that now you've come into that squad, you're the man on that squad who was who had some success and now, you know, you're the billboard guy in the NBL coming home, Australian, in the prime of your career of, of all times. How did you deal with kind of that pressure on a daily basis? I think I was pretty good at blocking it out, to be honest with you. I didn't really feel so much pressure around, you know what, man, I could almost say, that like I felt more pressure around the undefeated comment than you know my individual performances <laughs> hey context context Jock and I Jock made that comment and I picked him up on it I sent him a text and said um, so so pro just for context he said he, he made a comment to the media mm-hmm. saying we're going to go undefeated we're going to run the table I saw that ooh I texted him I said hey I saw your comment man there's no chance he goes he goes yeah we'll do it and I said alright put your money where your mouth is he goes oh no 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 I'm not betting on it I said <laughs> oh what so, so, you, so you lied to the media then you, you just you're lying in public, right? And he's like, oh, fuck click you. Bait, clickbait, clickbait, clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> no, he bet it though. Yeah, he's a no good shit. man. Jock, Jock bet it. And he, I think it was a thousand bucks, wasn't it? And he, and he paid up on it. So, um, it but yeah, um, that was one. Honest to God, I truly believe that we had the talent base to go undefeated in that competition. At the time, I would say once I started actually playing in the NBL, I realized that there are a lot more reputable names around the league <laughs> and I realized that some of those fucking teams are tough as nails. So, And you have to play in Perth with three referees who have you yep. know, tampons strapped on that are shitting themselves. Referees, and gonna, yeah. all of that. So, no, nah, was, that was a bit of fun. But honestly, like for the betterment of my mental what pressure uh, in terms of my, my own performance, the fact that I put that, that out to the world, the world at the start of the year even after we lost that first game to Perth I was like well I'm still I'm still I've, I've said this about going undefeated so now I have to win a championship or otherwise this will just be a fucking balls up of a year so at that point <laughs> that comment honestly took so much pressure off my own individual performance that I was like so focused and driven by winning that it, it probably did a lot of good for, for me personally but I also feel like it did a lot of good for our team in that you know we put a target on our back before season had even fucking started Started and it was for all of us it was all about winning you know I felt as though the intensity of practices were insane and through the roof and you know it was just so competitive the whole year round because we were just like we gotta fucking win this thing like if we don't win this this is like people will laugh at us so that really took a lot of pressure off off uh off my own individual performance in general. But at the same time, like, you know, I understood that I had a role to play on that team uh, and I had to show up every every night or otherwise we would some nights, you know, we would probably struggle. So, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was tough. It was, you know, initially there was, there was some angst about being that guy because, I mean, being who I am, I'm just, I'm always like, fuck, like, am I really worth all this hype? Am I really the guy that everyone makes me out to be on court? Like, all of that stuff always runs through my head. And that's, that's my insecurity as a basketball player is I don't know if I'm, you know, if I live up to the hype that people create around me. Uh, and it was no different going back to Melbourne. So, to kind of go back there and get those games under my belt and and, and really uh, perform the way I did, even though it wasn't, you know, I think Cam Luke or something said I was going to average 30 and 17 on the year. And I was just like, dude, that's <laughs> fucked. Like, that's even harder. That's even harder to live up to than undefeated comments. So, uh, to kind of oh, like brush man. all that off, I, it was a good year, man. That was, that was the best year I've ever had playing basketball. I loved it. Yeah, I, I like the comments even though I gave you shit about him because it, it made you vulnerable. It made 
you and probably the squad uncomfortable um, and I think you need that. I think it was it was an important thing to put pressure on yourself and if everything's too cool for school because you're the most talented team, you, you a lot of times won't end up with the chocolates at the end. All right, so we're going to ask about the Olympics. Everyone will want to know. You know, you, you guys had a, a phenomenal run there. A really, really good tournament. It was probably, I mean, you probably agree and you can probably take us through the USA game a little bit better than, than I can just watching it but, you know, essentially, I think a great tournament derailed essentially by, by two quarters. Um, yeah. Maybe two Two quarters and two minutes, to be fair, and that's that's the brutalness of FIBA basketball and the brutalness of of, of the Olympics. But where that segues is, it didn't it didn't then capitulate into going into a bronze medal game, saying, "Oh, we just lost to the US. We just lost to the US." So I guess take us through the USA game. And I've, I've asked Brian Gorgian this question, and he gave me, you know, details of his speech and like putting one on all of you guys' chins after the game. Take us through all that because, you know, before that USA game, it looked like it was going to be us in the US. Unfortunately, we drew them earlier than we wanted to. But take us through that that bounce back of, of, of being down in the doldrums, the tears after the USA game to then regrouping and, and obviously winning a, a bronze medal, the first, first medal in Australian basketball history. Yeah, man, it was, uh, that was a crazy time. I would say, you know, I would even cut back on those two, those, you know, that second half, man. I would say that we lost, you know, we lost that game in those last two minutes of the first because I feel like- That's what that I'm just- saying. That's why I said the two minutes because I, I said the same thing on commentary. I think it was, we're up 11 or 13 and then they cut it to five. Yeah, that completely derailed us and, and they came out and made some awesome adjustments and just weren't, like at that point, we were getting a lot of things kind of downhill, back cuts to the rim, all of that stuff because they were so focused on Patty on the three-point line. And and then that second half, it felt like they were just pushing us uphill and making Patty play one-on-one half the time. Um, so, you know, it was it was heartbreaking, man. Like we we really, really believed that we were gold medal uh, medal material. And, and to this day, I still believe that that, that team was, you know, we just – we we got debunked by two minutes in in that in that uh, f- you know that semi final and to come back into the locker room and to have the the characters in the room kind of just speaks to how like it speaks to the Australian way almost that you know we we didn't let that game completely derail the whole thing like we understood that whilst we were shooting f- shooting for the stars we had the we had the opportunity to land on the moon and that's kind of our whole mentality that was going into that bronze medal game is, hey, we're not going to fucking gold, but we have the opportunity to rose gold and come home with a medal for the first time ever. So, Gorge coming in and making that speech, which like gives me chills right now. Take us through it. Take us through it. Man, I don't even- Like, it was such a blur at that point when you were just kind of like being pulled out of this dark pit that like majority of the words kind of in one ear out the other but it was like you understood the message and the message was like (laughs) i mean the first thing you got to know is when gorge gets on a roll he fucking jumps from point a to c to z to f to a to b (laughs) to like so you've kind of got to you've got to decrypt the message yourself and sometimes man he would be talking about shit and i'll be like what the fuck is this guy on about but at the end of it you're like i get the message so the, you know, the message was there's no fucking way that we're going home to our families again being like, we fucking balls that up. Like, we have the opportunity to come home with a medal and you best believe that we're going to bloody do it. So, that was that was the whole message. And, you know, that's a very short version of it. But he was like, there's no fucking way I'm going to look around this village and see the, you know, the Australian basketball team boomers walking around with their heads down when we still have a like an opportunity to win a bronze. And, you know, from there, it was just like we there was obviously still a little bit of a down moment and the bus was quiet on the way home. But as soon as we got back, 
everything picked up and it was back to business as usual. Like, you know how hard it is after a loss like that to get in an ice bath or go get a massage or something like that. Like, it's the last fucking thing you want to do, but everyone was just on board. And you could tell just by those little things and guys going and getting a big meal together and kind of having a laugh that we were good and that it was kind of put to bed at that point. So, there were some tactics that were kind of tweaked in that, you know, the next 36 hours or whatever it was and I I was so confident going into that game but I will say if I've ever been nervous for a game that game was fucked that walk to the court I was like looking around and I was like bro I might pass out like I've never been so shit scared (laughs) in my entire life and I don't know why but I was thinking you know you don't really think about the pressure ever but at that point in time I was like dude what happens if I miss a shot and you know everyone in Australia blames you know me for the loss or like I was so in my head and scared at that point in time it was unbelievable but you know once you get on the court all that stuff kind of gets put to bed and you're just playing basketball but man that was a wild wild time Mm. and then yeah obviously getting it done you guys basically from the jump you could see slovenia kind of hung on try to fight they just they just didn't they weren't deep enough they weren't our bench was phenomenal as well everyone that played you know just the speed we played with in that gorgeous system was beautiful to watch everything was was pushing it right back at them you guys didn't get your heads down when they scored on you luca made tough shots at times but didn't shoot the best percentage turned it over a lot um but yeah it was phenomenal and you should be very proud about about setting history you were you were 12 you know 12.8 points 4.7 rebounds a night which which is very, very good numbers in Olympic Games in just over 21 minutes. So that. phenomenal. And I assume the um, the the rest after that was pretty hard to remember, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's not much memory for, for a couple of days. Actually, there's a, you know, the first night was just whatever went. I, I don't remember much, much of that night. The second night, I actually slowed down a little bit because I was just like, all right, like um, I was, I didn't get out of bed until like seven o'clock the following night. Like I was in all sorts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then uh, that night, you know, me and Josh Green and Duop were, you know, all the boys were hanging out, but we kind of was like, yo, I'm, I'm in so much pain. We backed off to the side a little bit. And then I thought it was all good and it was home stretch and I was going to meet India out in LA and we were going to have a good time. And then Paddy wouldn't fucking leave me alone the first day we got to LA and he was like, we're going out. There's no excuses. But so he was on like his fourth night in a row or something like that. And I was just trying to get a good night's sleep. And he would not leave me alone, bro. I got to the hotel. I lay down in my bed and I was like, fuck, finally, I can just relax and like embrace what's happened. FaceTime call. As soon as I hit the bed, man, Patty Mills is like, righto, what are we doing? Let's go get us a few beers. And it was just all hands on deck again. Yeah, no time, no rest for the wicked. No chance. He's a machine, man. Him and Nelly. I've never seen anything oh, like Nelly. Him. Yeah, Nelly's, Nelly's notorious for- He loves that. He loves getting amongst it. Um, you then- Obviously, have some negotiations. Any other teams before you signed with the Spurs, or was that was that kind of the only one that popped up, or were there a lot of people kicking the tires? Were you at that point? I guess that you signed. Did you sign right before the Olympics? Actually, no, I signed. Right, I signed right, right before the US game. Okay, yep, yep, that's right. Yeah, it was during, right? Yeah. Yep. There were conversations that had kind of trickled in from the last free agency period with one or two teams. But when we first got that offer, <laughs> this is actually pretty funny. And my agent, Sammy Wojcinski, who's an Aussie bloke, will appreciate this. But when we first got that offer from San Antonio, he called me and he was like, he was like, hey, can, do you mind if you just get India and yourself on the phone? I just want to kind of run you through how this free agency period will work and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, just give me a bell tomorrow at like 9 a.m. At this point, free agency had already opened up. So I was like, 
fuck, there must not be anything on the table if he's calling me to talk about how it's going to work. So <laughs> we jump on this FaceTime call and he's like, hey, all right, let's, let's get to it and we'll kind of have a chat about this. And I was like, yeah, what you got? And he was like, well, one thing I know is you're not going to be going overseas again this year. You've just had your first offer from the San Antonio Spurs. And I was like, you're fucking lying. Like that was my first reaction was, mate, there's no way. Like just shut up and tell me how this is really going to work. But he was serious and that was kind of how I found out about it with Inns on the phone and at first we were like all right how about we just actually i'm not going to take ownership of this he was like i think that we should just like you know wait fill it out see what else is out on the market and i was like all right you're the boss let's do it and then i kind of hung up the phone and i suppose we'd both just like got off the phone and we were like what the fuck are we talking about this is the first real opportunity i've had to play in the nba and our first reaction is hey let's wait and so i called him right back like 20 minutes later and i was like what the fuck are we doing he was like I have no idea. Let's sign the damn thing or let's agree to the damn thing. So that's, we agreed straight away. But for a second there, we were like, should we wait and like fill out the market? And then we were like, what the hell? This is the Spurs. What what are, what are we thinking? So after that, we were just straight on the phone to uh, to Brian Wright and, and yeah, the rest is history. Yeah, you would have then shrewded yourself, bro. <laughs> Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Especially an organization that has, you know, ties to, to Australians. I think um, I'm sure that would have factored into your decision as well. There's some ties there. And yeah, I, I guess for you, just getting your foot in the door is the most important thing. I think um, fulfilling a lifelong dream for you, obviously. But then, yeah, you, I think you made the right decision. I don't, I don't think um, you want to take that risk and that extra bit of stress than potentially waiting for a call. Look, you haven't you haven't played a whole lot with the Spurs, you know, um, questionable like i can question it you can't you got to keep doing what you're doing you know there was an opportunity there where Pirtle went down you saw aussies were firing up over here why didn't jock play you know you had a, a good game in, in garbage time the night before but talk us through just you know what you're going through professionally about just trying to stay ready when you, you just really don't know whether your number's going to be called and if it is is it garbage time is it legitimate minutes and i guess just give everyone kind of your daily uh, habits knowing that you probably aren't going to play a whole lot of minutes and if you do then there's that whole other mindset of, of staying ready staying engaged yeah i mean i mean the first the first thing's you know that comes to mind is you know you can't you can't bottle up your frustration like and uh, you know that's not something to hide is is that you're frustrated but you've just got to know the right outlets to use and you know you two are two of the outlets that I use on a daily basis and and India is and those are you know we're competitive individuals who obviously always want the best of ourselves in our career and and we want to play as much as we can and all of that jazz but you know those things kind of out of your control so for me right now it's it's just about as you said staying ready and i was talking to pro the other night at dinner and and um you know right now it's it really is and the best advice he's given me is or you know both of you have given me really is have a schedule and stick to it religiously no matter what so for me it's hour and a half before practice kicks off i'm at the facility and um you know, eating, doing some treatment, stretching, rolling, maybe some weights, uh, a couple extra shots, and then I'm on court with the group and just being religious about that time and time again and understanding, thank God I've got been through what I've been through in my career that the, you know, the battle of attrition and just rocking up every day and making sure I'm diligent and keeping to those things will pay off in the long run. So, that's my mentality right now, man, is like 
it's it really is out of my control you know these guys know what i bring to the table whether or not i get minutes on a given night is just not something that i can control and and luckily i've got india here because she's been huge and just trying to take my mind off things and we've really made a, a focus on trying to enjoy life off the court because you realize that when you're in a situation like this where you know you've worked so hard to get here and you want to play and you feel as though you could be contributing on the team it's important to ma- to not make this experience all about basketball because when things like this happen mentally you just go down the rabbit hole of you know it can get to a it can get to a really dark place so uh, she's been awesome in, in making sure that you know we stay out of that as much as we can and we we really enjoy life off the court we get out to austin a fair bit and just you know try and try and do different things so we took up paddle boarding for a little while there in the summer uh, it's cooled down a bit now but you know that was kind of our release is to just make sure that i don't go crazy but uh, at the same time like you know i've got to be ready to go and and you know i get up a more shots than I ha- ever have in my career. You know, I'm working with a guy, Kelly Forbes, over at the Spurs, who, you know, Patty put me on to. It's, it was his guy here. And he's a game changer. We do staying late after practice, doing stuff, uh, extra conditioning after games, which is an absolute nightmare. But, you know, just constantly trying to improve. And, and you know, I've been, I linked up with a psychologist at the start of this experience with the Spurs. And, and she's been huge in, you know, trying to make a mindset shift from, all right, it's, you know, my happiness is all depicted with how many minutes I play or me feeling successful is all about how many minutes I play. So I've kind of tried to move my mindset to more really specific goals like body fat percentage or, you know, how much I can uh, lift in a weight room or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So trying to set goals that will kind of lead to the success and bring on minutes on the court is really important right now. And that's, that's the stuff I'm trying to focus on now. I'm no bloody gem I, I will still get you know a bit upset about the situation and, and whatnot and and have to you know get some stuff off my chest but that's only because i'm human and i'm a competitor and i love winning and you know that's that's all i really want to do in my career is play meaningful minutes that depict whether or not a te- our team wins or loses so um that's kind of where i'm at right now um none you know nonetheless i'm i'm loving the experience the the hands-on work with uh you know the coaching staff and you know being able to work on my body to this degree Degree is something that I've never experienced before. And that's one of my favorite parts about the profession is being able to get in the weight room and kind of, you know, try and work on that aspect of, of, of my life. So luckily I enjoy that. And, um, you know, I'm able to have the resources to, to do all the extra work because, uh, you know, that's saving me a bit at the minute. Yeah, I guess my, my biggest regret looking back was exactly what you just said. I wish I enjoyed it more, man. Um, but when you're in the bubble and you're, you know, if I'm not ready for the next night, that guy's going to kick my ass or if I had a good game, I better keep it at that level or I don't want to get too up and down. Um, I probably wish I enjoyed it more. So that's definitely a good message. Pro, uh, you know, we talk about it all the time, pro, but, you know, with notorious veteran coaches especially like a Popovich even a Carlisle it's it's going to be that rainy night in <laughs> Indiana or Minnesota on a five game trip where all of a sudden you think you have no chance of playing when what happens bro you get subbed in right out of that game you know you're down 19 you know you're down like 15 middle of the like you know, end of the first quarter or like three minutes ago in the first they just throw you right in there and you're and you haven't played in a month and you're like what the fuck and you're in and that's why Londo you're, you're doing what you're supposed to do you're staying ready man you got to stay ready for all this stuff this stuff is important because nobody gives a fuck because if you're not ready they're just gonna say well he's fucking not ready so like the month we didn't play him this is why we didn't play him and regardless now if he scored 20 
Now it's like, ah, oh, we knew it, da da da. It just is what it is. And, you know, you just got to stay ready because there's 50 guys in the league going through what you're going through, not given a chance yet, can produce if they're given minutes. And they just got to get those minutes. You could work out until you blew in the face. You can go in the D League and put up Jokic numbers, which you did last night. Congratulations. And you can do anytime. And you could do all this stuff. But if you don't get NBA minutes at some point, People aren't going to see that. And you're going to get them. You're you're that good. You will get them. It's just, you just got to wait. It's going to happen. But like Bogue said, it's going to happen some fucking rainy night. You know, you're going to play fucking, you know, Steph at one point And, you know, you guys are going to be down fucking 19 after the first time out. And he's going to be like, what the fuck? And he's going to throw you in the game. And it's going to be like... All right, now now it's time to all this stuff you've been doing, all this, hey, I need to be, I, I should be playing, I should be playing. Well, now you're going to have to earn it and you're going to have to earn it and you have to go in the game and you got to figure some things out. Hey, you scored five the other night, you played a few minutes and, you know, it starts with that. You've got to stay ready. I always tell young players, the head coach is the warden of the jail. You're trying to get out of the fucking jail. You got to do whatever that fucking warden needs you to do to get out of jail. And, and that's what it is. You gotta, you gotta like the minimum is, Hey, I work hard and I have a schedule and I'm doing it. Everyone expects that. But now you have to just continue to make him happy every day and that coaching staff happy. That's why when we talked about getting there 90 minutes early, part of it is to get you prepared. Part of it is, you know, he might roll through like 80 minutes before practice starts and there you are. Like, what's this jerk off doing here? What the fuck? Like, that's good. That's what you want. And that's what, like, when, when, when we started that in Dallas of guys doing that, that was half the reason. It's a scam. Just make sure the coaches and the GM or whoever walks through that sees the guy there. And now what you do in those 90 minutes are very important, no doubt. But like, it's a mentality. It's a mindset. It's just, this is what we do every day, regardless. And I, I think you, uh, you just gonna, you just, once you get time, man, I'm, you know, you'll be fine. It's just getting that time. And, you know, it's just, it's being patient and not going nuts. You know, a lot of players, like, they die on the vine because they go nuts. It's like being on a fucking island. It's like being Tom Hanks and Castaway. You and, and, like, you end up fucking going nuts and talking to a volleyball and that's it. And then when you're, like, when you're all fucked up because you're not playing and then you get into a game and you're all fucked up and you go one for seven, four turner, turnovers, eight blowbys and you're like, yep, told me he ain't ready. So you got to stay ready because no one gives a fuck if you're not ready. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you're the only person right now that's president and CEO of, of Jock Lawndale Associates LLC. You're <laughs> the only guy, th- you know, throwing this stuff. Yeah. So that's what I'm it's, saying. And and you've shown that, you know, with the um, the G League, you know, you, you played last night or the night before, I think it was last night, um, 26 and 8 in 29 minutes, 12 for 14 on the field, your plus minus was insane. There's always an interesting psychology that I've noticed with the G League assignments is it can only go two ways. It can go horrifically bad. Or very very well, and you've obviously gone on the very well side. But I've seen I've seen semi you know hyped up rookies get sent down there and think I shouldn't be down here. This is bullshit, and they're probably right to an extent. And you probably don't deserve to be down there to be honest. But while you're there, you might as well you might as well go and kick some ass and take names and, and prove that hey, like whoever sent me down here, don't send me down here again. So I think that's a very important mindset shift, and at least you're getting some run. Um, you guys have that luxury of having you know, the Austin Spurs down the road as well, which is a good thing. But I guess finishing up from this, your obvious goal is obviously 
you know, establishing yourself in the NBA, playing minutes, playing a vital role, no doubt about that. But take us through some of your, I don't know if you do short, medium, long-term goals, but take us through what are your goals right now? You're 26 in the midst of your career. Give me give me some of your goals. Are you talking outside of the NBA or are you talking just in general? Either or, your world, man. I mean, I just know I do things small, medium, long generally. So small being like right now, week to week, month to month, mediums, probably two, three, four, five years and long terms, you know, you probably married your, your beautiful girlfriend and have kids by then, right? But uh, yeah, exactly that, that's right. kind of the mindset I'm going for. She's not on her head in the background right now. <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the sh- you know, the short term goal right now is just to is to cut carve out carve out a spot that influences the wins and losses of a team. That is that is where my mind is fixated. I, I miss playing winning basketball. I miss playing on a on a on a team that you know. I, I miss playing for a team. And being able to influence which way the way it go, the way the game goes. So right now, my goal is to try and carve out a, a spot that does that. Whether it be 10, 15, you know, seven, twenty minutes, whatever it might be, that is my goal. The, the medium term goal is to secure that second contract and really start to build a little bit of financial security for myself and and you know my future family and and all of that. And then I would just say that more of a long term general goal is you know I, I want to be a winner at all levels. I know how hard it is to do but winning championships is is honestly the top reason that i play this sport and i would love to do that here europe i've already done it in australia but i would love to go and have the opportunity to win a championship at all three levels um you know i would also love to finish my career back in australia on home soil and sydney kings <laughs> I will never go. I will never turn my head on Melbourne again. That was that was a great year. I'm sorry, mate. I am really sorry, but it's going to be Melbourne for life. No, I don't say that. No, we're editing that shit out. No, 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 don't say that. Don't <laughs> You'll say cut that. that out of the interview. My end and ultimate goal is to make the 32 Brisbane Olympics and retire right after that. That is that is the be all and end all that I've decided on. I decided on the day that uh, Brisbane was announced. I want to make it to that Olympics, which I'll be 36 at, play that Olympics out, and I'll retire right after that. 36 slash 37, you'll be here. Yeah. That's the ultimate yeah, stay goal. healthy. That's, a, that's the main thing. That's a good goal, though. Home soil, Brisbane. Yep. Come to the games and watch you. I'll probably be in a wheelchair by then, but uh, <laughs> I will, I'll definitely come to the games and watch you. Maybe Pro can fly out. We'll get him in the cargo. I thought Lawndale's short-term goals was to count to 10 without fucking looking like he ate a popsicle too fast. But that, <laughs> that's just me. Oh, mate. You are fucking full of it. I'm full of something. All right, Jock. It wasn't too bad, man. We appreciate it. I think um, having people learn your story, you know, I think you have a really good upbringing. I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, I know we, we talk shit a lot. It's always good to absolutely to have fun good sense of humor laid back um but yeah i mean continue to continue to do good things i think the whole of australia would agree with me we're we're, we're, just, we're all waiting collectively for you to get an opportunity to show what you can do at the at the nba level that's not not just some spot minutes we we all think that you're you're more than capable of playing 20 plus minutes in the nba and you shouldn't let anyone tell you otherwise pro but uh thanks for joining us pro you got anything else to, to party him with <laughs> nah thanks for picking up a fucking check it's about time an aussie does that so I appreciate that, man. What did that check up to see you back, Jock? How many items did uh, Pro, was it the whole menu or just just three quarters of it? It might have been like five, <laughs> six hundred bucks at a, at a fast food store, but I'm not 100% sure. You got to go buffets with Pro. That's the secret. <laughs> That's the secret. Buy in bulk. Costco saw me coming. They closed their fucking doors. So we had to go next door. Oh, All, right, Jock. All right, Jock. India in the background, thank you for joining us. Thank you for allowing Jock to spend some time with us and away from <laughs> you, but uh, we'll continue to watch your journey and wish you all the best. Awesome. Cheers, fellas. Later.